And open a Bible to Genesis chapter 15. You can scroll there perhaps on an app on your phone, or, or you can use the Bible that's in front of you. If you're using that Red Pew Bible, it's on page 13. Genesis is the first book of the Bible and so foundational for us in understanding what it means to follow God by faith and understanding who we are as those who believe in God. We have seen God's grace in these couple of weeks. We've been in Genesis. We saw God call Abram in chapter 12. And God protect and rescue Lot through the ministry of Abram in chapters 13 and 14. And now we come to a, a pivotal chapter where God affirms his covenant. God gives us a visible reminder that he keeps his promises. And so listen to the word of God, Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these, things, all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down to the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the promise of God. His covenant spoken to us, his church. Let me pray for us as we listen to God's word proclaimed. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the clarity of your word and pray, Father, that, that I would be clear in teaching today, that we would understand what you have for us, a picture of grace and our response of faith. Lord, work in our hearts for those who have questions and doubts. Give faith now to us to believe, to hear your word. And Father, we we remember today our veterans who have served, men and women who have served in our armed forces to provide us with freedom and protection. 
Lord, on this 100th anniversary of Remembrance Day, that day which was meant, that peace which was meant to end all wars, that peace which was sure to last for centuries, Father, we realize we live in a broken world where peace is still needed. And so we ask not only for for physical peace, for relational peace, for peace in our communities, but Lord, we ask for peace with you, a reconciled relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. So Father, thank you for those that have served. Bless those that continue to serve in their families. Lord, we also remember today as we gather and worship our middle school and high school students as they worship at North Bay Camp with 250 other students from our, from our region. Lord, I pray that as they have heard your word preached and proclaimed on Friday and Saturday and again this morning, that they would come home to us not merely tired from the fun of the weekend, but transformed by the power of your spirit at work applying your gospel in their hearts. And Lord, do that now in our hearts. Lord, let us be tender to your leadings, willing to listen. Lord, where you show us our sin, let us be convicted and repent and turn from sin. Let us follow you by faith. We come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. What moment should define your life? Right, if I were going to summarize your life and I had one story, one anecdote, what would you want me to tell? What would I use to explain who you are? I mean, maybe you think of some of the biggest successes in your life. You would, you would think of a graduation moment or a great athletic victory or, or success you've had in your vocation. Maybe it would be a, a pivotal relationship, a moment in your life you look back on your wedding day or, or your, your anniversary or, or the birth of a child and you think That's, that would describe me. Maybe it's not even your story that you'd want to tell. You'd want us to highlight the way that your life impacted someone else maybe a a colleague or a student whose life was transformed, or or even the story of one of your children. Or maybe you don't jump to those happy moments in life. Maybe when I say what would define you, you think much more sadly of your biggest failure, your biggest disappointment, the brokenness in your life. If we were going to summarize Abraham's life, we would do it here. In chapter 15, verse 6, look at what it says. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Now, yes, we could tell stories of of Abraham, and some of those stories are captured in the New Testament, but if we were going to summarize his life, we were going to pick a moment, and the moment that the New Testament writers return to again and again is this very verse. Because Abram is given to us as a picture of faith. An example, though, not only of the faith of Abram, but of the grace of God. So let's let's look at this passage. Let's let's unpack what chapter 15, what this covenant is meant. We see, first of all, that God is the one who starts this covenant. Now, we've already seen that in chapter 12, that God was the one who called Abram. It was God's initiative. God got it started. But we see even here, Abram's just, just won a great victory. He has been blessed by God through the king at the end of chapter 14, the king Melchizedek. He has has worshipped God. And then God shows up in verse 1 and reveals himself. God starts the conversation again. 
And consider how remarkable that is. You and I would be left behind the curtain not knowing what's happening unless God chooses to open the curtain and reveal himself to us. Unless God speaks, we would have nothing to listen to. And so God is the one who initiates. And in verse 1, he comes to Abram in a vision. And his very first words are, do not be afraid. Now, I don't think, and commentators point out, that it's probably not merely God speaking into Abram's circumstances because Abram is right now fresh off a great victory, off the blessing of God. So, so when he looks around at his life, he's not looking at a, at a fearful moment. But why does God begin with those words, do not be afraid? It's because if God shows up in your life, it's a startling and frightening thing. The king of the universe. I mean, if you just go in comparison of your size and power, God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and you can barely get through today. God is the one who speaks, and things change, and you work hard, and, and nothing seems to change. But, but not only in terms of your, your power, think of God's holiness and perfection in your brokenness. And so it's not a surprise that the first thing God reminds him here, do not be afraid, Abram. And then God gives these great promises of verse 1. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram, just having come from, from a military victory, is reminded that it wasn't his great plan or his, his, his bravery that won the battle. We saw in chapter 14, it was God who won the victory. God is the shield and protector of Abram. Because Abram is the one who has been given the promise of God. God is his very great reward. All of the good blessings in life that Abram has come because of who God is and what God has done for Abram. See, God is the one who comes, initiates, starts this covenant with Abram. But then immediately Abram realizes, I don't think this is quite working. And it's his question in, in verse 2, and I say this because we're moving toward verse 6, which I've already told you that, that God, Abram believed the Lord. And so I don't think this question is a, no, 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 God. I don't believe you when you say that it's a, it's kind of the Mary moment when, she, when the angel appears to her at Christmas. And she says, but how? How could this be? It's a, it's a question of faith. I want to understand what you're doing. I believe what you say, but, but how? And so that's what Abram is asking. What, what could you give me since I remain childless? It doesn't matter what great reward, what blessings you pour out on me. I'm an old man. I'm going to die soon. There will be nothing left, and the promise will be gone. So how, how God, can you keep your promise to me? What will you give me if, if the one who will inherit everything I have, the only man whose name I can write down in my will, is a servant, yes, a trusted servant, Eliezer, but I have no children. And God speaks to him then in verse 4, gives him the promise, a promise of a son who will come from his own body, his physical descendant, the one who will be the child of the promise. In verse 5, God takes Abram outside. And looking up into the dark, starry night, starry night not not, not deluded by the lights of cities surrounding him, but in the ancient world, walking out into the darkness, where the stars seem so close, you feel like you should be able to just reach up and scoop some of them down. And God says, count them. Count the stars. Go ahead. See if you can. That's how big, how expansive my promises are. We saw in previous chapters, God says, count the dust of the earth. We'll see coming. Count the sand on the seashore. That's how numerous God's promises are. The fulfillment of God's promises that your descendants will be like that. Your offspring will be like the stars of the sky. And Abram, here's the promise that God initiates. And what do we, what do we see? That Abram believes. 
That's verse 6, the center of this passage, really the central point in Abram's story, the summary of, of who he is. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Belief, it's a personal assent. It's a personal commitment. It's not merely knowing about what God has said. It's not understanding merely the syntax of the promises that are given, being able to pass a test at the end of the semester. No, it's, it's personally trusting the God who made the promises. Abram believed the Lord. The Lord, it's in capital letters, reminding us that this is God's covenant name, God who has revealed himself to us as Yahweh, the God who knows us and loves us. And then what does God do in response in seeing Abram's faith? The Lord credited it to him as righteousness. He counted Abram's trust and faith as a right and obedient response, a response that, that is considered to be righteous. It puts him in right standing with God. It puts him on the side of goodness and holiness and justice. He is one counted and considered morally right. He is credited, this faith is credited to him as righteousness. But your objection should be, wait, wait a second, Abram? The guy who immediately after he walks into the promised land, passes off his wife and pawns her off on Pharaoh to protect himself, Abram is righteous? How could he be considered righteous? Because it seems like here, Abram's getting credit from God for something that he doesn't really deserve, something that doesn't really belong to him. It's, it's as if he's cheating here to be considered righteous. It's some sort of mistake, isn't it? Now, a, a small cafe in central France was overwhelmed last year when they were awarded three Michelin stars. It was a, a small, uh, the, the reporters, the fancy diners who arrived to, to this restaurant were surprised at what they found. Simple lunchtime fare served on plastic polka-dotted tablecloths. What a kid from Jersey would call a diner had just been awarded one of these elite, fine-dining Michelin stars. Well, you see, it's because La Boucherie, the little diner, had the same name as a much fancier restaurant near Paris. And the confusion by the, the, those giving out the rankings is, well, the street names were actually the same. One was just the street and one was an avenue, but in different cities, but, but easy to confuse until you walked in. Veronica, the little cafe owner, the, the, the woman who ran the diner, she says, suddenly we were, we were rushing around off of our feet. Reporters are coming in. She says, my, my son phoned me from Paris because he saw, he saw the report that we'd been given a Michelin star, and we just burst out laughing. I, I had friends, I had regulars that were here every day, the, the workmen who would come in on their lunch break saying, you didn't tell us you were a fine, classically trained chef. But see, such a mistake is easily correctable. They can put out a press release. They can change the printing next year. And actually, in the end, it probably helped both restaurants because they both got much more publicity. The, the restaurant that really earned the star is now highlighted and promoted, maybe even above others that are new to the list. And, and this little diner gets a lot of foot traffic. But is that what's happening here with Abram? He's getting credit. He's getting the, the, the higher rating, this, this outstanding ranking, even we, though we know he's a miserable guy. Is he cheating? 
even if it was someone else's mistake, I mean, it was, after all, it was God who credited him. He's just standing there. Of course, if somebody hands you the extra change, maybe you just walk away with it. It wasn't your mistake after all. Is that what's happening here? Well, this is an important point, not because it's, not because it merely helps us understand Genesis 15. Is it a mistake that Abraham is considered righteous? This is an important point because this actually helps us understand what is faith. It's the core of the Christian gospel. How am I, a sinner, made righteous by God? All right, so we're going to jump. I've told you that this verse, verse 6, that God credited Abram's faith as righteousness is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. So let's look there. Let's turn to the book of Romans. So toward the back of your Bible, the Apostle Paul writes a letter describing what it is to have faith in Christ and to receive the gift that God gives. We're going to turn to Romans 4. But to summarize where we are in Romans 4, the first three chapters, the big argument that Paul is making is, you are all terrible sinners. I don't care where you grew up. I don't care how much you went to church. I don't, I don't care if you memorized the Torah in synagogue school. You are a sinner who cannot count on your own righteousness. If it's up to you to, to say, look at all the good stuff I have done, then you are hopeless. That's, that's what we're told, that we need a righteousness that's given to us. So in Romans 3, verse 21, Paul describes this righteousness from God, a righteousness that's apart from the law but has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This is Romans 3, 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All right, Paul's argument, you are a sinner, you are unrighteous but there is a righteousness offered through Christ received by faith. And now in chapter 4, Paul will expand this and explain it to us using Genesis 15, the example of Abram, to help us understand what is at the core of the gospel, what is expected of me is a response of faith. Not trusting in the goodness of myself, but calling Jesus my righteousness. He's my only defense. He's my only hope. So now Romans Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul will point us back to Abram and tell us that if Abram was credited as righteous because of his good works, then he actually stands in a superior position than God. God would owe him something. But Abram is considered righteous by faith. Romans 4, verse 1, Well, then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. You hear the argument. If Abraham was there as righteous because of his good works, then he holds an IOU that he can cash into God. God, I have done all of this good stuff, and now you owe me. And Paul is saying, no, 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 don't, don't you see the foolishness of that in verse 2? But, but that would be as if he had something to boast about, even before God. That, that can't be the case. That would be you, but in your good works, going to God and saying, God, after all, the wages for what I have done is that you have to let me into heaven because I'm that good. 
But that's not how it works. See, grace is a given to us as a gift. If it was your wages, you don't write your boss a thank you note every two weeks when you get your paycheck. Thank you so much. What a, what a great gift. I'm, I'm just surprised and excited that you would. No, your work deserves to be paid with wages. Now, there might be times you should write your boss a thank you note. And, and maybe if you've stumbled through the week and you recognize that I probably didn't earn all of this this week. But your work deserves to be paid. And so if you come before God declaring that look at my works, then if he pays you anything, it's because he owes it to you. Don't you see the foolish position that that would put us in? Hey, God, let's, let's not take a look at all of the really bad stuff that I've messed up. Let's just list these, these handful of things. And these things, these things, no matter, no matter how small they are compared to what you have done, these things mean you now, the God of the universe, owe me entry into heaven. But that can't be how it works. Because I would have to keep hidden all of the mess of my life, all of my sin. And I would have to, to even the good things that I bring, I would have to hide the selfish motives that are, that, are worn, that, are, that are twisted through all of them. And I would have to say, and God, remember, yeah, they might be small, but you should consider these as big enough to get me in. But Abraham is considered righteous because he believed. But still, does that solve our problem in Genesis 15? Isn't it still, he hasn't, he hasn't done anything. Is it as if God is agreeing with me like, hey, just don't look at all this mess. God, close your eyes, close your eyes. Well, and, and then you quick kind of, kind of run and hide everything. And then God looks up and, oh, you know, like you're playing peekaboo with a child. You're pretending as if one of you has disappeared. And you suddenly are surprised that, oh my, well, look, look at how cleaned up all of this is. You really are a wonderful person. Is that what God is doing? Has he kind of mixed up our names, the street we live on, which restaurant he's walked in? Paul will continue this argument through chapter, through chapter 4, but, but let's jump to, the, to, to verses 25, to the very end of the chapter. To verse, beginning at verse 22. So Paul comes back to this quotation that, that it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Paul is going to show us how God can actually declare Abram to be righteous. Because Abram's sins have been forgiven, and the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Jesus, is given to him. Romans 4, verse 22, This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So God is not playing games here. This isn't, this isn't that, that he's just pretending that Abraham is righteous. No, what, what does it mean? And, and remember, this is not only for Abraham back then, this is for us right now. That's what Paul is arguing. That the example of Abraham is because this is what it means to respond by faith. The righteousness that we receive, that God credits to us, comes from another. See, God looks at our sin and our brokenness, and he takes our sin and he places it on Jesus. Jesus on the cross pays the penalty for our sins. Now you are wiped clean, your slate is clean, you are forgiven when you come asking for forgiveness. But even that wouldn't be enough. That just means you're not terrible. 
You can't be considered righteous at that point. No, where does the righteousness come from? It comes to us by faith through Jesus. Jesus, who was delivered over to death, took our sins, and more than that, God gave us the righteousness of Jesus. He hasn't just mixed up the addresses. No, Jesus has moved into town. He's bought the restaurant. He's renovated it. He's changed the menu. He's cooking the meals. You deserve all of the the excellence that is given to you because what is God looking at? He's looking at Jesus himself. Abram's faith is a humble faith that says, I have nothing to bring, nothing but my sin and my brokenness. But I trust God that you are the one who forgives my sin. And we're told even here that for Abraham, that was through Jesus. He was looking forward to it. We look back in history at what God has done. That Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. And so faith is the only tool you could use to access Jesus's righteousness. Because if you come saying, but, but I did this really good thing, well, then you're, you're misunderstanding whose righteousness you're trusting in. Faith is the only tool that, 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 that gains you access to the righteousness of Jesus because faith is saying, I have nothing to bring, but I'm throwing myself on Jesus. I'm trusting in him. I'm not trusting myself at all. I'm trusting Christ alone. Trust, faith is the only thing we could do that would keep us from trusting in ourselves. So we are called to respond like Abraham, by faith. As we turn back to Genesis 15, we see that not only did God start the covenant, but God will confirm the covenant. Abram, after we're told in verse 6 of Genesis 15 that, that he believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness, God then reveals himself more fully. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. Does that phrase sound familiar to you if you've heard Scripture? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's the way the Ten Commandments begin. They begin with the promise of God. The response that's demanded only comes because God has already acted. You see what God is doing for Abraham. He's he's saying, he's calling him at the beginning of the chapter to look forward to the promise that you will have a son. But he's telling him, because I am the God who has already done this for you, look forward to but know it by looking back, because Abraham asks that question. Verse 8, again, a, a question of faith, because he starts with, O sovereign Lord, O God who has revealed yourself to me, the one who is sovereign and in all control, how could I know that I will gain possession of this? How can I know that your promise will be true in the future? And, and maybe that's the question you wrestle with today. Like, how do I make sense of all of this? How would I know if it's actually true? Maybe you're, you're doubting whether or not Christianity, whether or not the Bible can be believed. Because you have reason to doubt. You've been told by our culture, by our society. Well, well, here, as a starting point, I want you to, 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 to apply the same level of questioning and doubt to the Bible, to Christian, to, to your, to, that you're applying to the Bible. I want you to apply that same level of doubt to the question of how do you know anything? Like if you came to me and said, I know that the earth is round, how do you know? I mean, have you been in a vantage point where you could see all of it? No, well, no you would say, I've seen the pictures. They've been up there. They've, they've talked about it. I've flown in an airplane. I've seen the curvature. Of the, or like, I, I know it because I've, I've seen it. Well, how do you know the way you saw it with your eyes? is no, and, and, and I'm not actually trying to cause you to doubt whether or not you know anything. 
Okay, I mean, that's the job of your philosophy 101 professor in college. They ask you the question, well, how do you know, how do you know that you're in this room? How do you know that you're not just a brain in a vat with, with little electrical impulses being, and you're, you're, how do you know you're not just some, some toy in some giant's little, little playhouse? I'm not, I'm not actually asking you to doubt anything. I'm just asking you to, to apply the same level of doubt to the other things you claim to know that you would to the Bible. How would I know if God made himself known? I would have to trust that when he spoke, it was significant enough that somebody wrote it down and reported it to me. How would I know that God can be trusted for what he says in the future? It's because I look at what he has done in the past, what's been revealed to me. And Christianity is, is a religion that gives us clarity in what we can know. Jesus showed up on earth, lived a life of obedience to God, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead. You can look at the evidence. I'm asking you to consider how would you know it? You would actually ultimately then have to know something about the character of the person who tells you. I mean, consider your kids coming home with a report card. But they don't have it because I left it in my locker. But they tell you, I got straight A's. Would you believe them? It sort of depends on which kid, right? Because there are some kids in my house that I would probably believe. I've seen her previous grades, and I trust her to tell me. Oh, I've just given away which, of the, which one it is. There might be others in my house that I wouldn't believe so much. Why? Because of what I know about their past performance and uh, their current character. Now, actually, I, either of the two that would come on with A's or B's, I actually would trust. Um, just so that when this story gets back to them, since they're not here to hear me tell it. Um, the littlest one, not so much. Um, you can tell him that. But, but you actually need to know something of the character of the person who's telling you. You know, like my little one, I mean, he, he came running around like, it's snowing, it's snowing. What are you talking about? Like, well, he's excited and he's imaginative and I know something about that. And so I didn't believe him because it was 60 degrees outside. You would need to know something about the person who's telling you. What do you know about who God is? He is the God who calls and rescues even sinners. He's the God who has proven his faithfulness. And he will show that to Abraham. When, when Abraham asked the question, how would I know? God then says, I'll show you. And, he, and, and, and when you read the, the second half, when you heard me read the second half of Genesis 15, it, it seems really out of place. Oh God, how will I know? And so the Lord doesn't give him an answer of, let's, well, let's turn to, uh, you know, let's read through the questions of Socrates and come up with a question of how do we know anything. No, what does God, what does God say? Verse 9, in answer to Abraham's question, how would I know that this is true? Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Wait, what? And then God clearly has given Abraham instructions about what to do to, to slice these creatures in half, to lay the bloody carcasses out, which to us sounds totally bizarre and probably somewhat bizarre to Abraham, but he at least had context in the ancient world that, that throughout the ancient Near East, treaties were often ratified between a great king and a lesser king by doing this. By taking animals, slicing them in half. We have, we have it from outside the Bible, the, the repetition of these stories, where what is happening? The great king comes and he imposes some sort of taxes or obligations upon the lesser king. And he says, I'm going to covenant with you. If you pay these taxes, the, if the army from the south comes and attacks you, I'll come and protect you. Well, how would I know you're going to keep your promises? Let's, let's, let's make a covenant together. Let's promise together. And so usually what would happen in these ancient ceremonies is the two kings would walk between the carcasses, down the middle, kind of down the aisle of carcasses with bloody animals on both sides. And what they are saying 
is, if I don't keep my word, then let this happen to me. Let me be slaughtered and destroyed. Now, sometimes the greater king was in such a position of power that he decided to sit back with his feet up, drinking his, from his goblet, and made just the lesser king walk through. Like, hey, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, what are you going to do about it? But if you don't keep your end of the bargain, I'm slicing you in half. But in this covenant ceremony, look at verse 12. What is Abram doing when the ceremony starts? He's asleep. He's not doing anything. He falls asleep with this sense of dread and darkness over him. But now in verse 17, we have a, an image of fire and of, of, flame, of flame and of smoke, which are images used for the people who would have first been reading this. They've been following a, a pillar of fire. They've been following a, a cloud. They've seen the smoke at Sinai, and so they would know, oh, that image, that's God showing up. And so verse 17 what is God doing in the middle of the ceremony? He's the one who says, I will keep my promises. God not only begins the covenant with Abraham and expects a response of faith from Abraham, but then he confirms the covenant by making promises. Only God passes between the dead carcasses. And we're told in verse 18 then a summary of what God has done. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God confirms his promises to Abram. The God of the universe has obligated himself to this man. This man who we know is a failure. We're going to see it really obviously next week. Chapter 16 is terrible for Abram. I mean, you thought he was bad in chapter 12? But God says, I will keep my promises while you sleep, while you do nothing. God is the covenant-keeping God. He has made an oath, a promise to Abraham, a promise to us. And so we're called to believe the Lord, to know that what the Lord says is true, to, to cast aside fear and turn in trust to God. My dad, early in his ministry, had the opportunity to preach inside uh, one of the prisons near our home in New Jersey. And when you're preaching in a prison, you have a captive audience because the guards literally lock the doors as they exit. The bad news is it means you're in a room where you know the people in the room have, you know exactly what they have done to get themselves in here. It was listed in the conviction report. And the prison my dad was serving at was a, viol a prison filled with men who were going to be here for most of them the rest of their lives, no possibility of parole. They have done the kinds of things that deserve that kind of punishment. So my dad is alone with violent, convicted men, and he teaches about the ministry of Jesus and the, tells them you have to respond by faith and that you bring nothing of none of your good works. There's nothing you do to redeem yourself. You merely trust in Jesus. My dad said he was interrupted in the middle of his teaching by a man who had to kind of peel himself out of the desk he was sitting at. A man who my dad describes as, as as wide and as deep as a refrigerator, but much taller. A violent, enormous man who says to him, no, no, that can't be it. That, it it's, it's too easy. You're telling me that with everything that I have done, 
everything that they have done, that all that's asked of me is to trust in Jesus? That can't be it. Now, one of the first things you should learn as you're going into prison is you shouldn't argue with men who are three times your size. But as you know, those of you that know my dad, no, he's not really generally quick at learning lessons. So he decides, he decides to argue. Now, not in himself, but to point back to the Word of God, to point back to the truth of God, and says, well, that's exactly what it means. What faith is, is an admission that you can do nothing to fix the problem, nothing to atone for your sin, nothing to make you right before God, but he will make you right if you come to him by faith. And then my, man looked, my dad looked at this man and said, and if it's so easy, then do it. And this enormous man just shrank back into his seat, unwilling to admit his sinfulness. And maybe that's where you are today, willing to kind of shrink back. Yes, the story of, of grace is, is lovely, but the story of my sin, I don't want that exposed. But that's what you're called to do, to believe in the Lord, to receive his righteousness is to admit you have nothing to bring. Any claim on your own righteousness is to, is to make a mockery of God and to say, God, you owe me. You owe me big for what I have done. That's an arrogant foolishness. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Do you know for sure that his promises are true? Jesus, the Savior, gave his life for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and receive his righteousness as a gift. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray for those that, that struggle, that, that even now feel the, the weight, the burden upon them to come and confess their sin, Lord, that they would even now do that. That even as we conclude this worship service, that they would turn to you by faith, confessing their sin. Lord, grant us the gift of faith. Allow us to respond to your, to your story of grace and mercy by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for, for each one here who has made that profession of faith public in following after you, that you would, you would encourage them, that they would hear the promises that you are our shield, our great reward, that they would find hope and comfort in your word, that they would be strengthened to know that what you say is true, to believe your future promises based on your character and past action. And Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus, the one who gave his life for us. Amen.